Hi, this is uh, Dr. Peter Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, having on the podcast Dr. Dimitri Zamarin. He is with the Department of Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. And uh, today we have the great pleasure of speaking with Dimitri about uh, of obviously a very relevant topic on the treatment uh, of ovarian clear cell carcinoma, and the use of immune checkpoint blockade. So, Dimitri, uh, thank you again for accepting our invitation, and uh, and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for the invitation, Pedro. Yeah, happy to be here. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Dimitri, obviously, lots of, uh, lots of topics to discuss, but we're particularly interested in, uh, in some of your work with regards to immune checkpoint blockade, and not only in, in all ovarian cancer, but, uh, but also in clear cell. So wanted to ask you a little bit if we can start by discussing what are some of the unique characteristics of, of clear cell carcinoma in distinction from some of the other histologic subtypes? Sure, absolutely. So, so clear cell carcinomas, it's a subtype of ovarian cancer and actually some endometrial cancers as well. These are thought to arise in endometriosis and they're different from the more common type of uh, ovarian cancer that we see in patients, which is the high-grade serous ovarian cancer. So, so while in general, the clear cell cancers are more rare in the European countries and the Americas, the incidence is actually much higher in the East Asia. And it is unclear whether this is due to the genetic or environmental factors. Uh, these tumors are also molecularly different from the high-grade serous cancers. They, they tend to not have homologous recombination deficiency, uh, but their profile is actually more similar to endometrial cancers, meaning they frequently carry mutations in gene like P10, PIK3CA, KRAS, and ARID1A. And occasionally these tumors may also be associated with microsatellite instability, although generally that's not very common. So great, Dimitri. And one of the things that, that we often talk about is, uh, you know, do these tumors respond the same way as other histologic subtypes like high-grade serous carcinoma to our standard chemotherapy? Can you uh, talk a little bit about that with regards to whether there are some differences in terms of that uh, expected response? Yep, no, absolutely. So, so we do treat clear cell carcinomas typically with the same regimens as we do the high-grade serous ovarian cancers. But as you well know, they do not respond as well. They tend to be fairly chemo-resistant. So, so even if I give an example, in newly diagnosed high-grade serous ovarian cancers, we typically res, uh, expect the chemotherapy response to standard uh, regimen like carboplatin paclitaxel of close to 70 to 80%. The response in clear cell carcinoma is substantially lower. Typically, it is quoted to be in the order of like more like 30 to 40 percent. And moreover, these responses are not very durable. These tumors are very rapidly developed chemotherapy resistant uh, resistance. And then in subsequent lines of therapy, the, uh, the, the responses are even lower to the single agents that, 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 that we have for hybrid serous ovarian cancer. You know, they don't respond to PARP inhibitors. So certainly novel strategies for these cancers are needed. Great. And um, Dimitri, some of the questions that I'll be asking are from some of our fellows in the, in the journal. Um, this one is from uh, Christina Ewing in the, in the UK. And she wanted to see if you can just uh, talk a little bit about what data do we have regarding uh, immune checkpoint blockade in, in these tumors? Like, you know, PDL1 inhibitors, um, CTLA, CTLA4, 
Um, can you explain a little bit about what, what is the process and the mechanism in, uh, in, in these tumors? Sure, sure, absolutely. So I guess maybe maybe I'll go over a little bit uh, just the, uh, about the, the immunotherapy in general, specifically immune checkpoint blockade. So so immune checkpoints are the immune regulatory proteins that get upregulated in on T cells in response to their activation. And these are in general negative feedback mechanisms. The immune system has developed these mechanisms as a strategy to uh, prevent autoimmunity in the context of, uh, for example, an infection. So, uh, and, and targeting of these immune checkpoints has been shown to be a very uh, valuable strategy for treatment of certain cancer types. And in fact, there is a number of, uh, of agents that are approved. So one of such molecules, uh, which is called CTLA-4, it is upregulated on T cells very shortly after a T cell encounters its antigen for the first time in a, in a, in a draining lymph node. And this antigen could be an infection or a tumor antigen. And, uh, and this, is, this is the process that's called T cell priming. And, uh, and, and uh, the another checkpoint that's called PD-1 is, um, is when the T cell that's already uh, has become activated and goes to the site of an infection or perhaps a tumor and starts interacting with its target. And in the process of chronic interaction, or what we also call this chronic antigen stimulation, it upregulates a molecule called PD-1 on its surface, which is another negative feedback mechanism. And, 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 uh, and signaling through PD-1 is mediated by interaction with its target, which is PD-L1, which is commonly expressed uh, in the tumor tissues. And, and these checkpoints are present probably in the majority of cancers. So there's, there's certainly a rationale to target uh, the checkpoints in, in all cancer types. Unfortunately, that has not been uh, effective in, in many of the gynecologic cancers, including uh, ovarian cancers. And, and the current research is trying to really understand how, first of all, can we make targeting of these checkpoints effective in all of the cancer types, but also to understand which patients are more likely to respond to them. Great. And, and um, the, the, um, the follow-up question is, and I think it's somewhat related to a point you brought up and where you mentioned that um, this process has worked in many cancers, but not so much in some of the ovarian cancers. So this next question is from Arthur Shu from uh, Taiwan. Um, he's asking, why is immunotherapy potentially effective in ovarian clear cell carcinoma when we've had uh, several phase three trials looking into immunotherapy in ovarian cancer, like the Javelin trial, the Imagine 50, the Ninja trial, that suggested that immunotherapy may not be so effective in all ovarian cancers? Sure. No, no, absolutely. Indeed, immunotherapy, specifically targeting uh, uh, PD-1 and PD-L1, has been now evaluated in a, in a number of trials, both in the advanced platinum resistance setting, but also in the upfront settings in combination with chemotherapy. And, and, and indeed, that's very disappointing that uh, even in the upfront setting so far in the trials that have resulted, such as Imagine 50 or Javelin 100, you know, this has not prolonged the progression-free survival uh, with the upfront therapy, which is different from some of the other cancer types like lung cancer, where we saw activity, perhaps even synergistic activity in combination with chemotherapy. So nevertheless, there, there is a subset of patients does appear to, be, uh, to benefit, actually both in the high-grade serious cancers as well, but, 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 but seemingly uh, perhaps more, more so in, uh, in the clear cell carcinomas. And, and you know, I, I have personally have had a few patients who um, in the advanced platinum resistance setting went on to have a complete 
response and have been disease free for over five years now. These are uncommon, but trying to understand who, uh, who these patients are is certainly something that, we, that we're trying to do. So, so the evidence for the perhaps improved responses in clear cell carcinomas, today there is, it is sort of anecdotal. I mean, we see perhaps an increased proportion of patients in, uh, in all of these trials with clear cell carcinomas that are more likely to, to have a response. Um, uh, so, so, uh, and, and, but I also want to emphasize that it's not all clear cell patients that do respond. So if, if, for example, response in a high grade series of ovarian cancer is approximately 8% in clear cell carcinomas, it's maybe double of that, maybe a little bit higher. It's kind of hard to put a, a number on it, but, but certainly, uh, they, they seem to be, they, they do appear to benefit more, uh, and we need larger prospective studies to probably, uh, quantify the degree of the benefit. Yeah. And, and uh, <clears throat> getting back now to then, <clears throat> you had a, an important publication, the NRG study, I believe is uh, NRG GY003. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the results of that study? And how is that study different from some of the other phase three trials that we talked about in ovarian cancer? Sure, absolutely. So, so NRG GY003 was actually a phase two study. It was not a phase three trial. It was an NCI-sponsored clinical trial, uh, and it randomized patients with uh, recurrent ovarian cancer to, uh, to PD-1 blockade with a drug called nivolumab or a combination immune checkpoint blockade uh, of, uh, with uh, a, a CTLA-4 targeting agent called ipilimumab in combination uh, with nivolumab, versus, uh, basically double versus single immune checkpoint blockade. Um, and, and the study was actually opened in 2015, at which point we actually, we had very limited information on the activity of these agents in ovarian cancer. Uh, at that point, the data from melanoma trial seemed to suggest that the combination immune checkpoint blockade is more effective than single PD-1 inhibitors. And that was probably one of the key rationale uh, uh, that, that we have had to start that trial. So, so the result, uh, so we, uh, the, the trial accrued a total of hundred patients, 50 patients per arm. And the results of the study do uh, appear to demonstrate that the combined immune checkpoint blockade with PD-1 and CTLA-4 uh, inhibitor is, uh, is superior with regards to response rate. There was al almost a tripled response rate that went from 12% to 31% of unconfirmed response in our study, uh, the confirmed responses were a bit lower, but still uh, statistically significant uh, differences. And there was a doubling of progression-free survival from uh, two to four months. And notably, a number of patients also had a very durable disease control. Uh, mm. As expected, there were, uh, you know, with, with the combination, there was an increase in, uh, in toxicities, and they, uh, meaning immune-related adverse events in the combination group. Uh, particularly, there was a higher incidence of grade three diarrhea uh, and colitis on, on the study. It was still not, not as high as what was reported in the original melanoma studies, particularly because we used a lower dose of epilimumab. The total uh, um, um, grade three toxicity for specifically for colitis was on the order of, uh, of 6%. This was not just colitis, but colitis and diarrhea. Uh, part of a uh, uh, nice thing about this study is that we have learned to manage these toxicities uh, within the context of the studies, which made, which made it probably uh, gave, gave us more de a higher degree of comfort for the future studies with these agents.
Great. And and one of the questions that comes to us from Catherine Hicks Curran, uh, our fellow, and uh, she's at the University of Pennsylvania. She was asking in, in this particular, the NRG study, um, which was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, I should add, um, if you can explain a little bit more about the study design as it pertains to like the stratification and these permutated blocks within the strata, um, she's asking what, what advantages did you find in, in that design? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, so as I mentioned before, this was not a phase three trial. It was a phase two study. Uh, it was a randomized phase two study, but because it's a phase two study, it's, it's smaller. When you have a smaller randomized study, you, you have a higher chance that your randomization is not going you know, to result in a balanced population. So, uh, so the, uh, the statistical design here, namely using the stratification and permuted blocks, uh, it, it really uh, tries to, to use these strategies to, uh, to make sure that the population is balanced. So, so since several different variables could potentially influence the outcomes of the study, um, uh, this, uh, this kind of a strategy can, uh, can, can restrict the randomization. So, so, uh, so what are those strategies? So, so in the process of the, uh, the stratification, uh, uh, what we do is we take uh, any known variable that we think could influence the outcomes, let's say a prognostic variable. And we, uh, prog uh, before the randomization, we basically uh, uh, stratify the patients. We create the strata on, on the basis of this variable and then randomize the patients to the two, uh, two different parts. So for example, in the case of GY003, we enrolled patients who had uh, platinum resistant ovarian cancer, meaning the cancer has recurred within six months of the last platinum-based chemotherapy, and also patients who had partially resi uh, platinum resistant ovarian cancer. And these are the patients that had disease progression within 12 months of platinum therapy. And because platinum therapy sensitivity is an important prognostic variable, the patients were first stratified on the basis of the complete or, or this partial platinum resistance. And these are the two strata. And then uh, the randomization was uh, was then performed separately within uh, each strata. So then the, the permuted block technique is is really randomizing the patients between the different treatments within a set of of study participants. And this uh, each set of the study participants is called a block. And you can define the different sizes of blocks. But for example, the permuted um, uh, but the, this permuted block technique assures that the patients are equally allocated. Uh, to each study arm. So for example, if we have a block of eight patients, we can assure that the four patients go to one study arm and, and, and one to another. So again, in summary, just in the smaller studies, these randomizations techniques ensure that we have a very balanced allocation and we're not biasing one population or another. Yes, a great strategy for when you have a smaller number of patients. Um, a a follow-up to the, to the methodology from Hussein El-Hash, he's uh, one of our fellows in France. Uh, he asked, can the authors elaborate on, on why they chose tumor response as a primary objective and not something like progression-free survival? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an excellent question. Usually progression-free survival, I think, is something that probably be more clinically important or clinically uh, applicable. At the time that we started this study, we had basically no information of what would be the expected progression-free survival with, uh, with, these, uh, with these agents. 
There was a small study of uh, single agent nivolumab that was conducted by Dr. Hamanishi and colleagues in Japan. It demonstrated that nivolumab alone had approximately a 15% response rate, and this sort of gave us a baseline for comparison. So we uh, we decided to use, just because this is all the information we had, we decided to use the uh, overall response rate as our primary endpoint, but we nevertheless included the progression-free survival and overall survival as secondary endpoints. Right. And this next question actually came from several of our fellows, and they said they noted that uh, you reported that PDL1 expression was not associated with response in either treatment group. So, why do you think that was the case? Uh, this is an excellent question, and we can talk about PDL1 for hours and hours, <laughs> but, uh, so, 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 but, but we're not going to. So, so, so PDL1 in general is not an ideal uh, biomarker, actually, in any cancer type, although it does appear to enrich for responders in some cancers. Uh, yeah, but in ovarian cancer particular, or perhaps even in our study, we do have several challenges. So, so one of the challenges is that we we only used archival tissue for this for this study file, uh, and and the archival tissue means that the patient, which is the patient, is the tissue that's collected during the debulking surgery, which means that subsequently patients have received multiple lines of therapy. And since PDL1 is a dynamic marker, it is possible that the, while they had PDL1 in the tissue uh, before, you know, the PDL1 expression has disappeared and, and vice versa. But I think mm -hmm. a bigger, uh, but this is, this is a typical challenge probably for any cancer. Uh, what I think is actually a bigger challenge is a high degree of heterogeneity that we have in ovarian cancer. So now like uh, multiple studies have emerged over the past few years demonstrating that even in newly diagnosed patients, if we look at multiple tumor sites within the same patient, we find very different microenvironments. There's this high degree of, uh, of heterogeneity and you can have different levels of PDL1 expression within the same patient, depending on the tumor you look at. So given this heterogeneity, it's very tough to establish PDL1 as a, as, as a biomarker since we don't know whether the selected tumor is really representative of the patient's disease. Excellent. Um, before we leave the uh, NRG uh, GY003, uh, Catherine uh, hicks currently she, she is asking, um, did the experience of running this trial specifically uh, go as expected? Was there anything that surprised you? And what would you do differently if designing uh, a study again uh, related to this topic? Sure, absolutely. I think what, what surprises us first was the, the, the accrual. Is, uh, it, it was uh, one of the fastest accruing studies that, uh, that, that, that we have had. Yeah, the study accrued in two stages. Within each stage, 50, 50 patients were accrued within a period of like six to eight weeks. So basically, we would open, close, and then open and close again. It, it went so fast. And I think while the accrual at that time could have been driven by the overall enthusiasm for immunotherapy, it just, it, it, it overall highlights the need for novel therapeutics in this population of patients. Uh, but, but, uh, but with regards to the second question, uh, we did learn a few things that I think I would change in, in the future. So, so, uh, so uh, um, immunotherapy does not elicit an immediate response. So, so it's, it's in general, it is not a good patient, a good strategy for patients who have already symptomatic disease or are at risk for development of symptomatic disease within weeks of starting therapy. Actually, a few years ago, we've published a study that um, just on our overall experience with immunotherapy in ovarian cancer, 
And many of these patients had to discontinue therapy within like four weeks or so, just because they developed uh, bowel obstructions, refractory ascites, uh, fistulas sometimes. So, 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 so for patients that have a significant degree of peritoneal disease, in, in our cases of uh, ovarian cancer, even you know, since since these drugs take a while to kick in, maybe it's not a best uh, strategy. So, so, so um, for the subsequent studies, um, I've actually started recommending to perhaps you know exclude patients that have a, you know, a bowel obstruction within the past mm. few weeks or exclude patients that have refractory ascites because uh, then the drugs do not benefit the patients and they do not benefit, you know, and do not benefit the study because um, it doesn't, doesn't give us the right answer. This is not to say that we shouldn't be enrolling these patients onto uh, trials that, uh, that, that perhaps uh, can, uh, have, a, have an agent that could, um, could immediately control the cancer. So for example, if we have a chemotherapy in combination with the immune checkpoint inhibitor, I think that's a very appropriate strategy for these patients, but just the immunotherapy alone, I'm very hesitant to use in these patients. Yeah, those are really important points that you raise. And uh, actually, I wasn't aware of, of, of some of those uh, details. And uh, I think it's really very helpful information as we discuss um, whether to implement these strategies with our patients. So, uh, Dimitri, I wanted to ask you, because obviously we started talking about clear cell, then we went through some of the data that we have in, in all ovarian cancer. Um, now, getting back to the point of, of clear cell, um, you know, you and your team recently published, uh, I believe it was January of this year, in our own journal, a, a, a manuscript titled Treatment of Ovarian Clear Cell Carcinoma with Immune Checkpoint Blockade. Um, I think you're using PDL1 inhibitor, CTLA4. Um, what did that study show and what do we take away from that? Sure. No, absolutely. So, so I guess in the process of uh, treating our patients, we have come across a series of uh, 16 patients in that case with the ovarian clear cell carcinoma. They received immune checkpoint inhibitors, either PD-1, PDL1 inhibitors alone or, or in combination with CTLA-4 inhibitors. And, and we found that the four of these patients experienced a very durable clinical clinical benefit. Uh, we, we defined the clinical benefit as uh, as uh, progression free for over six months. Uh, but uh, so so we had four patients. Three of these patients were actually progression free for a year or longer, and one of the patients was progression free for over four years. Mm -hmm. So that we we thought that that was uh, interesting. So we, we looked at these patients in more detail. Uh, and, and, and actually the, the patient that had this four year, uh, you know, complete response, uh, she, she discontinued therapy, not because she stopped responding. She discontinued therapy early because she had liver toxicity. Mm. Four years later, her cancer came back. We retreated her with immune checkpoint inhibitors and she again had a complete <laughs> response. And of course, again, developed liver toxicity. So, so she's still disease free now about a year after, uh, uh, after being uh, retreated, but we, we found that, that, you know, that, that question always comes up is like, can we reuse checkpoint inhibitors um, after, you know, patient has already been on a checkpoint inhibitor. And then it seems like that could be the case for the patients that discontinue checkpoint inhibitors, not for disease progression, but, uh, you know, for, for other reasons, perhaps for completion um, uh, of therapy. Uh, this also gave us an opportunity to look at some uh, genetic and microenvironment biomarkers in these patients. We we uh, did not identify in any genetic biomarkers in this, uh, but it was a very small uh, cohort. Uh, we, we did have some pretreatment biopsies on the patients, only in responders actually, and it seemed like their tumors 
didn't necessarily have much PDL1, but they had high numbers of tumor infiltrating PD1 positive T cells. This is what we mm. define as exhausted T cells. In some cancers, uh, they, there's emerging ed- uh, evidence that these T cells may predict responses to immunotherapy. So it's certainly something that would be interested in looking at in a larger cohort of patients with clear cell carcinoma. Yeah. That's that's great. That's very interesting. And then I think as a follow-up to that, Arthur uh, was asking um, any molecular profiles, any signals that tell us as to whether this patient is going to be a good responder versus a poor responder. Yeah, from our small data set, we, like I said, we unfortunately did not identify any molecular predictors of benefit, but the study was uh, very underpowered. Uh, presumably patients who would have uh, high TMB or tumor mutational burden would be more likely to, uh, to uh, benefit. But high TMB is actually also very rare in uh, ovarian clear cell carcinomas with the exception of uh, some patients that may have uh, a microsatellite instability. So I think like looking in larger data sets, perhaps there could be some molecular alterations that could be grouped together and, uh, and, and we could identify something, but, um, but we, we need to generate these data sets first. Yeah. yeah. And uh, this uh, next question comes from Jessica Sun. She's actually a fellow here at Anderson. Um, and she was asking if you could elaborate a little bit about the effect of, of course, PARP inhibitors on uh, immunotherapy response and whether BRCA mutation impacts anything on outcomes as it pertains to immunotherapy. Uh, it's an it's an excellent question that we we also uh, try to explore. So so if you just look at the tumors that uh, have BRCA mutations or tumors that have homologous recombination deficiency, they appear to be more immunogenic, right? I mean, you look under the microscope, they have more infiltrating immune cells, uh, 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 they have better prognosis, and and many have predicted that these tumors may be more responsive to uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, but so far, this does not appear to be the case. Uh, we, mm. we have looked in, uh, in, at our own experience and we've published on it a couple of years ago in the, in the patient. It was like actually 140 something patients that were treated with immune checkpoint inhibitors. About 30 of them had BRCA mutations. These patients were not more likely to respond or have improved progression-free survival in comparison to the patients that, uh, that were BRCA wild type. We looked at the homologous recombination deficiency as a predictor of response that, that was also not associated. Mm-hmm. And this is not just in these advanced patients. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Javelin 100 uh, data in the upfront setting has actually um, demonstrated in a subgroup analysis that the BRCA mutated patients or patients with BRCA mutated tumors rather were also not more likely to benefit from addition of mm-hmm. abelumab. I don't believe that data were published yet, but they were presented at, uh, I think it was an IGCS meeting a couple of years ago. So, 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 so unfortunately, despite looking more inflamed, these tumors do not appear to respond better, perhaps due to this heterogeneity that I have described earlier. With regards to the impact of PARP inhibitors on the efficacy of immunotherapy, there's certainly very compelling preclinical data to suggest that uh, addition of PARP inhibitors can activate innate immune response by sort of generating DNA damage and cytosolic DNA recognition, and that may drive systemic adaptive immunity. Uh, there have been some trials, and the only data we have actually from clinic is from the Topacio trial that Dr. Constantinopoulos has run. It, it did have an overall response rate of uh, 18% in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer patients that were treated with a PARP inhibitor and a PD-1 inhibitor. So it was a small study. 
Uh, the effect appears to be additive, but certainly larger validation studies are needed. And, and there are a number of those studies that are currently uh, ongoing. Yeah. Great. So, uh, Dimitri, uh, with regards to obviously, I want to be respectful of your time. So I have two more questions. Uh, sure. yeah, one yeah. of them is in uh, the, you know, the general scope of ovarian cancer, um, where we are today, uh, how you counsel your patients with regards to the impact of immunotherapy for overall ovarian cancer. How does that discussion go uh, for your patients? Uh, so, so, you know, I, every, uh, all the patients obviously do ask about it. And, uh, you know, we do highlight the data that have been presented to date, you know, like everybody still wants an immune checkpoint inhibitor. And actually <laughs> in the community, many people do give immune checkpoint inhibitors, even for patients with high-grade serious ovarian uh, cancers. And, you know, like with an 8% response rate it is not a, not a high response rate, but it's actually close to what we have with many of the single agent chemotherapy. Right. So I don't think it's necessarily unreasonable. I wish we had a good biomarker specifically, at least for the high grade series ovarian cancers. Uh, but, but, uh, but unfortunately we still do not. I mean, we also always want to highlight that BRCA mutation is, is not necessarily a biomarker. So, so mm. I, I never recommend immunotherapy outside of a clinical trial. So we, we always try to find a study, a study for the patients uh, that, that would have an immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, in combination with, with something else. Uh, uh, if somebody has a you know, clear cell carcinoma, this is obviously uh, specifically uh, very important for that as well. Again, the, these patients tend to progress on their chemotherapies earlier, and then they present and, and are in need of therapies. And again, based on this anecdotal evidence, we do think that immuno, you know, uh, that possibly uh, immunotherapy may work uh, better in them. I don't know if PD-1 inhibitors alone work better in clear cell carcinoma. So far, uh, the data seem to suggest that maybe it needs to be combined with something else. If you look at the NINJA study that was uh, done in Japan recently, it seemed like clear cell carcinomas, eh, maybe, maybe they had a little bit of a better response than, than, uh, than the other cancers when compared to chemotherapy, but that did not reach statistical significance. Uh, Don Dizon has actually, uh, is conducting a study of CTLA-4 and PD-1 inhibitors in extra renal clear cell carcinomas. Hmm. They presented some of the data at the ASCO 2022 for the stage one analysis. And it seems like it was not a single agent PD-1 inhibitor. It was the PD-1 in combination with CTLA-4 that, uh, that uh, uh, seems to benefit these patients more in, a, in their stage one analysis data. This was about 10 patients that had a res overall response rate in these clear cell carcinomas of approximately, I think it was 26%. Um, uh, and and uh, this was 15 patients and three patients had a CR. Uh, so, and so, so they actually, they're going to move on to the second stage of their study. In our study in the GY003, uh, it seemed like the combination particularly was more beneficial in the clear cell carcinomas as well. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to say, uh, say that we should use these data to uh, drive treatment decisions in our patients as a standard of care, but I think we can use these data as a rationale for further studies of these combination in uh, patients with clear cell cancers. Well, that's great. And uh, just as a, as a last question, and obviously it's from, from what you just mentioned, it seems that there's, there is a lot of enthusiasm for the potential of immunotherapy in, uh, in clear cell carcinoma. So my last question is, do you foresee uh, feasibility or is there one already ongoing 
a prospective randomized specifically on clear cell carcinoma of the ovary? Oh, that would be that would be fantastic, right? So it's uh, so so I think it's a. Uh, um, the, the feasibility is probably much higher in uh, East Asia than it is in the United States, just because uh, it's, it's a relatively rare cancer. Uh, you know, there are other agents that may have potential activity in clear cell carcinoma, like, for example, linvatinib and pembrolizumab, which is approved for endometrial cancer. And so clear cell carcinomas are closer to endometrial cancers. They are being explored with that combination as well. Not in a sort of a large randomized study. These are still sort of a smaller phase two kinds of studies. Uh, it is my hope that, uh, you know, that eventually we will, uh, you know, whether this is with CTLA-4 and PD-1 combination, lymvatinib, pembrolizumab, or maybe others, that we will uh, eventually get to these uh, sort of a larger randomized studies where we would be able to definitively definitively say that uh, whether these drugs are uh, effective or not. But I, but I remain very hopeful. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. Dimitri Zamarin, medical oncologist, uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, thank you so, so much for your time. I really enjoyed this discussion, learned uh, a great deal. Uh, and again, thank you for the contributions you continue to make to GYN Oncology. And thank you again for accepting our invitation. Absolutely. It was my pleasure chatting with you. And uh, thank you for the invitation as well. And looking forward to chatting you about something else in the future. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>